there is another dimension beyond that which is known to the business professional. It is a dimension not only of requirements, but of analysis. It is the middle ground between success and failure, between methodologies and beliefs, and it lies between the valley of an organization's fears and the peak of its ability. This is the dimension of project potential. It is an area which we call business analysis. In this world of business analysis, we walk the fine line between project success and failure. This is episode three of the BA Horror Stories. My name is David Manica. I'm the president at ASPE Training. Today, I will be talking with Rob Snowden, noted brain surgeon and other things, a seasoned and salty BA professional with a horror story about BA techniques for large initiatives. So, Mr. Roberto... For our new listeners, can you give us a quick 15-second intro into yourself? Nothing boring, please. Well, besides being a brain surgeon, I'm also a nuclear physicist and a former Top Gun pilot. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. I did not know that about you. Can we call you, what's that guy's name that does all those cool Tom Cruise? Maverick. Maverick. <laughs> All right, Roberto, I don't think any of our wonderful listeners believe that. Can you give me a 20-second synopsis of your background? Okay, I've worked in a, a lot of different IT situations. I worked for uh, uh, governments. I worked for banks, uh, healthcare, um, and a variety of others as an employee. And then later I um, was a contractor and worked at a, a lot of different places. Also along the line, I started teaching um, BA courses around 2004, in between my contracting gigs, and now full-time instructor with Interesting. ASP. Interesting. So you're really trying to pull the wool over our listeners' eyes, but with the Top Gun pilot Maverick thing. Pull the wool? I guess I'm sort of sheepish about that. Ooh, very good. All right, question number two. It's all about horror stories in these podcasts, folks, if you've been listening to a bunch of them. And from my perspective, there are different types of horror stories. For example, you have the gore type and you have the psychological type. Each have differences. At a high level, from your perspective, Rob, what are some of the differences between business analysis for larger initiatives and for smaller ones? Well, a smaller one, if you really think about it, it's a lone BA working on it. So you're figuring out everything on your own. But on the other hand, you're the master of your own destiny. You're the one that's deciding how many SMEs to um, interview or whatever you're going to do. Uh, with a bigger project, there, you know, everything exponentially gets more complex, more stakeholders, more work on getting agreement on how the new system will process things, sorting out conflicting perspectives, getting more people available for extracting information. So the whole thing is just more perplexing on top of everything else. And when you have a lot of SMEs involved, you're going to be better off running at least some facilitated sessions to collapse the calendar time rather than a whole lot of individual interviews. So so the larger initiatives, you have those a lot of SMEs, so it's like herding a bunch of cats, right? Yeah, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. Yes, I completely yeah. agree with that. So that was a good perspective on some of the higher-level differences, whether you're the lone warrior and you got a lot more control, but a little bit more fear and uncertainty, or you're the you know, the project manager having to deal with the cat herding and all the other craziness 
associated with trying to get all the information in place. So you're playing BA and project manager. So let's jump into question number three. We're going to get a little bit more specific. For me, I love comedy, as you can kind of tell. I'm a little goofy. And so I like comedy horror films like Motel Hell when he wears the pig hat and he chases everybody with the chainsaw, or Rocky Horror Picture Show with um, Frankenstein or Frank Frother, which is pretty cool. And, of course, Little Shop of Horror, Steve Martin. How can not laugh at that situation? So give me a couple of stories that are funny but horrific at the same time, just especially from a large project requirements analysis and development and what ultimately happened in those projects. Well, from a, a comedy perspective, one of the things I can tell you is I was working on a test implementation for the ability to provide kiosks that you might find in a, a mall, let's say, where people could apply for a credit card and not only receive confirmation of acceptance, but actually get the actual card would come out of the minutes. So there was a lot of work, obviously, to make this thing work. Wait, 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 wait. Um, so like a magic card. So I put some information in, out pops a magic money card. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like an ATM, except instead of you having the card, it gives you a card. Holy moly. So okay, that's pretty cool. The only thing was there, we did need a human being just to verify your driver's license. So it would be inside another store. It couldn't be actually in the mall. But everything else you would just key in, and then it would do the um, – all the things that are normally occurring for a credit card acceptance really quick and then actually generate the card right there at the kiosk. So we got through all the testing and all that. But in the meantime, the higher-ups had decided that they wanted to do some good for the community as well as test this in a real situation. So this is, the, this is where the downfall of everything started. Um, the do-good approach they decided to put the kiosk in a check cashing emporium, which means that the people that would come in to use this kiosk would not be a true cross-section of people who wander by the kiosk. They actually, actually have to go inside this check cashing place. So consequently, you get people that are skating on thin ice as far as their credit worthiness goes. But the idea was that this bank that I was working for would give credit to people that don't really deserve credit. I mean, they, their score would tell them they, they, they don't qualify. So the uh, rules were loosened at the kiosk. So the idea was we would do good. But what happened was that word got out on the street that you could get a credit card in 15 minutes with a $300 limit and no application fee or any other fee uh, attached to it. And so people streamed in there and now you couldn't get it in 15 minutes. The lines were too long. Several people were drunk. Fights broke out. The police were called. Whoa, 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 whoa. So somehow your, your leaders were not playing with a full deck here. Was there any simulation that – did anybody say, well, this might happen? There was this completely an unintended consequence? Uh, it was like the, the idea of the noble savage. It's, it's kind of like, well, these, these are good people – and given a chance, they will do good things. And, and probably a good percentage of the people would be like that. But, you know, you're talking about a check cashing emporium, and it's in a, not the best part of town. And when we're good on the street, well, anybody who thought, hey, I get a $300 credit card, all I got to do is walk down the street. The fact that I've just slugged down some beer, wine, or whiskey, that's just part of the scenario. So they... 
wander in there and they find out there's a long line and they're hanging around and, you know, it's pushing and shoving and bang, fight started. So, yeah, the police were called, people were herded out. And then on top of that, many, many of the people that got those cards, rather than looking at it as a way to establish credit and to improve their lot in life, just went out and charged $300 worth of stuff and then threw the cards in the dumpsters. So the, the problem... The best laid plans of mice and men turn to not. Right. It's the no good deed goes unpunished kind of thing. So that's, right. that's one. Another one was working on uh, developing a child support system to operate in the courts. We were under a lot of pressure because the money came from the General Assembly through the Supreme Court of Virginia. And, of course, with any large from-scratch project, delay started occurring. So there was intense pressure to put the first system in, which was the child support system. And then that was going to be followed by a variety of other systems. So we're going through testing. And um, on that project, the there were six business analysts, and we did everything except the actual development. So documented the current flows and wrote requirements, designed the screens, did the testing, and then wrote the manuals and did the training and actually the implementation of the, uh, the system. So during training, messing around, I stumbled on the situation. If a certain particular set of circumstances happened, um, the checks and balances of the system were not watertight. So if money was collected from a father, let's just say, but the mother's on welfare, so the money would pass through the court, and then periodically a check, a big check would be generated to the welfare department to pay back some of the, the money that went out to the mother and the children. So, you know, everything was lined up. So of the $15,000 check, $100 was for this family, $300 for that family, and so on and so forth. But there was an odd situation where money could come in but not go out. So if that happened with a non-welfare situation, the mother would have been contacting the court saying, hey, my ex-husband said that he paid, the, paid money and I didn't get it, and, and there would be an investigation. But for these welfare checks going to the Department of Social Services, nobody at the other end was expecting a particular amount because if you're receiving welfare, you don't also get child support. So what happened was we, we realized there was this little issue but we figured that we, we couldn't delay the system any longer. We were really close to implementation. It was like, okay, we'll just live with this little quirk. For this to happen, a clerk at the court would have to intervene and set some switches. But we figured nobody would even think of doing that. Or if they had thought of it, because the courts are so careful about who is hired, they would never be the kind of person to do that. Well, about a month into implementation, it was discovered that one of the clerks, well, it was suspected that something was awry with the system. Um, but then when they, when the judge, chief judge of the uh, this jurisdiction called me in to talk to me about this, he started telling me the situation. I knew exactly what it was. And it was like, oh, my gosh, somebody in, in the court had figured it out. So as it turned out, um, that ended up being a big dramatic situation because the once I got in the system and took a look at it and I could verify what happened, then the next day the police came in and arrested the uh, clerk and marched her out of the court. 
Um, it's amazing, Rob, with some of these larger projects, there are so many different decision bubbles and so many different possible outcomes that some of these unintended consequences you wouldn't even never think about. Fights breaking out because of a uh, credit card machine or somebody figuring out a flaw of a system it's just really difficult to actually say, hey, this could happen because you've got so many other moving parts. Well, yeah, and you're, you're focused on so many things at one time. And in that fog of war, things are confused and you just miss things. Or you, like in the, uh, our situation with the courts, it was like, oh, what are the chances of that happening? We'll fix it. Yeah, the ball, hey, Rob, the ball was certainly in her court. Yeah, she right. went to a court she wasn't expecting that. So, <laughs> so tell us about the third, the third situation. The third one, okay, so I was working for a healthcare company, and um, uh, at the time, all inpatient services had a fee schedule, so that every single procedure had a dollar value attached to it, and all the hospitals and physicians that were, let's say, had an agreement with a particular hospital and with the healthcare company, they received a certain amount, no matter what they charged. They could charge $10,000, but on the fee schedule, it was $1,200 for whatever procedure. For outpatient uh, services, though, less than 24 hours, there was no fee schedule. Uh, the agreement was that the healthcare company would pay a percent of the charge. So that wasn't a big deal when there weren't very many serious outpatient services. But with technology moving forward, things that used to be inpatient, now they could do it uh, outpatient. And because they could get more money by making it an outpatient service, that's what the hospitals and physicians were doing. So you have a $10,000 appendectomy. Well, if it was inpatient, maybe we pay you 8000 But if it's outpatient, they could charge 50000 and we would pay a percentage of that 50000 So controls need to be in place. So the idea was that we were developing all this to replace the fee percentage of charge situation. And so we thought, let's just go in, look at the code for how inpatient is, is handled, and we'll just take out the things that are inpatient related, but we'll use the fee schedule as it is. So that was all well and good, but then one of the developers noticed something that we thought was, a, was an error, and that during some of the logic, for no apparent reason, money would be deducted before the reimbursement check went out to the provider or hospital. So we thought, oh, good thing we found this. Now we can fix it for not only outpatient, we can fix it for inpatient. So we went to uh, an IT director and explained the situation. And she called us into the office and said, leave everything like it is. And we said, well, yeah, but we're taking money that isn't ours. I mean, it's it's a mistake. And she said, no, it's not a mistake. It's on purpose. Just keep this to yourselves and code outpatient like inpatient. And we were like, okay, we brought it to somebody's attention. It's immoral and illegal, but what are we going to do about it? So what we did was the II captain and just went ahead and put the logic in place for outpatient. So here we go. We got this thing happening. So what occurred? So, what? so then we had to tell the testers that were involved because they would have <laughs> noticed that this thing was going awry. And we said, that's that's okay. We didn't say, oh, that's illegal or immoral. We just said, 
oh, yeah, that goes to a special fund or something. You know, we just made something up so we wouldn't spread the cone of silence, you know. So then what happened is a couple months later, after implementation, somehow the word got to the internal fraud department and got to the newspapers and media. Then, of course, gigantic news splash about what was going on. The General Assembly got involved. And the end result was not only did the healthcare company have to pay back all the money it had been skimming with interest and got millions of dollars in fines. But in any case, uh, you know, it was just amazing to me that the official word to the media was, well, this was a mistake. We didn't know it was happening. And it was like, huh, well, I don't think that's anyway. Well, so and also was... the problem with this, too, is for the people who are getting impacted, it added insult to the injury. You have an injury, you need help, and then you get insulted on top of that. Right, and it, it, it was huge bad will. I mean, people don't feel good about healthcare companies anyway. Well, now here was proof that at least one large company was doing what you always suspected they were doing. So, Yeah, that's why it costs an arm and a leg to get the service. So the thing i got to ask about with these examples, a lot of times – now, the horror story is there, and you're watching it occur, and you really have no control. I mean, how do you deal with that? Well, that's the thing. I mean, all these stories, these three stories had nothing to do with the coding or the, the requirements or any of that. That part went okay. I was, let's say, were the, nor the normal difficulties. It was dealing with this political and, well, who knows, what do you want to call it, where, oh, we're going to do good and put it in a check-cashing emporium, and you're thinking – are you kidding me? Have you ever been in one of those? Well, probably yeah. none of us have. But you sort of imagine that this this could only spell trouble. Um, well, I'll tell you what, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Rob, but a lot of the networking people call that layer eight the political level layer. So like from the ISO model from physical layer all the way up to the software layer, then there's layer eight, which is the political level. So there's really, in this horror story, you just have to stand there and watch it happen. I mean, how is that for a BA? How does that feel? Well, you feel like you ought to do something about it, but you don't know, well, how far out on a limb do you go, especially when you're younger? You are more afraid, let's say, of the upper levels. So they're older, more experienced and all that. You don't want to mess up your career. And then later on, now you've got a vested interest. You've been at a place for several years, and you don't want to throw that down the toilet, so to speak. So you're trying to figure out, well, I did what I was supposed to do. I told the people, let's say in the um, healthcare thing, and they just chose not to do anything about it. But then I was sort of living with this icky feeling, you know, what am I doing working at a place like this? What, yeah. what else are they doing that I don't know about? You know, is this just the tip of the iceberg? So the, the thing is, is that um, with the kiosk thing, we just didn't know what to do. We felt like it was a done deal and there was no way to stop it. We were just happy everything in the system worked fine and whatever will be, will be. With the courts, we had already been hammered on delays, delays, delays. And this one thing to fix, when everything else looked pretty good for the implementation, which was just like the next week or something, there's no way we could really say we can't implement. We, we felt the risk was small. But we didn't tell anybody about it either. So well, I'll was... tell you, on that number three, that's kind of an interesting scenario because really, like you said, the risk was small. Was curiosity killed the cat? And 
how much could you come up with the fact that someone would actually figure out the flaw and, and use it? And, of course, they had to pay the price for that. Right, and as it turned out, this particular person, at, once she was arrested and everything, it turned out she had a checkered past that she had covered up. So she seemed like a nice, honest person and worked there for about a year. But I think she was just taking advantage of the new system, and maybe she was going to take a chunk of money, disappear, and that was going to be it. It's just that it was discovered before she had the chance to make a break for it. I do want to say that, um, well, well, going back to the courts, the head of IT was an ex-colonel uh, from the Air Force in charge of the Missile Command Center for the East Coast. And then he left on a Friday and then retired. And then Monday, he was our boss. And this was months before this implementation happened. But still, he was a hard-charging kind of fist-slammer kind of guy. So we were all kind of scared of him. Yeah. At, um the healthcare company, we we should have gone to the legal department. We should have bumped it up and not just stopped at the IT director. We didn't know who she had talked to, but we figured, oh, she must have checked it out with everybody. But this is not something you learn from, you know, our courses or anybody else's courses. It's all focused as far as business analyst kind of skills. It's all about the requirements uh, and the scope and who the stakeholders are, but how to deal with these other issues surrounding the project, it's something you only learn through the school of hard knocks, I guess. No, and this is uh, part of the reason for having the podcast like this is to yeah. talk about this side of it. It's much more than just the t- tips and techniques. It's also some of the unintended consequences and situations that occur in projects and the moral dilemmas that you face. This has been great. So let's get into a little bit more fun. So question number four from my perspective, there are always some great tools in horror stories, and tools meaning appliances of terror. I love the motel hell scene again with the chainsaw and the pig head. If you haven't seen that, please. It's actually motel hello, and then the O dies out, and it's just motel hell. And he made beef jerky out of people. That was his claim to fame. He was pretty good at it, too. So that was a chainsaw. And then, of course, the hand claws of Freddy Krueger. How many people know about the hand claws of Freddy Krueger? So... I'm sure there are some really good tools that you can talk to us about for dealing with business analysis and large initiatives, just like the the antagonist in the horror movie uses their tools. So we'll give us some thoughts about some of those tools. Well, as I've said in previous podcasts, planning is key. So p- put some time into not just the project plan that the PM is supposed to put together, but all, all the things that a BA is going to be doing, the who are you going to interview? How much time is it going to take? Uh, are you going to observe anybody doing their job? And how much time is that going to take? And then running facilitated sessions, all that. So a plan for how you're going to approach the requirements and getting approvals and sign-offs and all that. Of course, any tool, and I mean technique to identify um, all the stakeholders, is really important on a large project because it there's the un seen impacts that are out there that somebody's going to get a report and they had requirements, but nobody foresaw it. There's tools like using post-it notes and whiteboards and uh, the sticky wall, which is a five by 12 foot sheet sprayed with artist spray mounts so that regular pieces of paper stick to it. Sort of like having bigger post-it notes to be able to put up ideas and cluster things and all that. A real good tool is the ability whether you're using flip charts, whiteboards, or whatever, 
or electronically is drawing diagrams. If people are looking at something, they can start pointing to box two or box four or move things around and explain things differently than if it's all verbal and it's just floating around in the universe. Of course, I'm a big proponent on uh, facilitated sessions, especially if nothing else to give the whole project a jump start to begin with and to organize people and sort of gel the teamwork feeling of, especially for the SMEs that come and go and come and go during the course of a project to feel like they're really a part of this thing and to have a longer meeting than it's just another one hour meeting that I'm zipping to and leaving. You stick in some fun and some interesting things and, and that build that, that rapport. Uh, the old expression, a fool with a tool is still a fool. Um, I believe that and have seen that. I'm sure many people have. So I'm not big on recommending particular requirements management tools per se. All the tools in the world can be reduced to capturing a lot of not that important information. And the most important tool is people talking regularly, either face-to-face -face or in virtual meetings. And then as far as virtual meetings go, it's important just to display your desktop to basically make the electronic equivalent of what you would have written on a whiteboard or a flip chart or done with a post-it note so that people on the call are looking at something rather than staring at their speaker phone during the meeting. Um, and, of course, well-run virtual meetings are great because everybody appreciates it. Another thing, this is an old thing, but regular project meetings, sort of modeled after the scrum daily stand-ups. Uh, maybe not on a waterfall project, have it every day, but every week for sure. The idea is that it keeps information flowing and prevents people from hiding out and not getting things done. If you have really regular short meetings, then people are, have peer pressure to say what they've done since the last meeting, since you're going to go around the room and ask everybody, what are they doing? And with that in mind, also break large waterfall projects into phases, sort of large sprints rather than one really large, long project, and also integrate the lessons learned rather than have one, let's say, a nine-month project, and at the very end you have the lessons learned on what you should have done. Why not run kind of like the sprints, do a retrospective in Agile, do periodic lessons learned at this point in the project so we can roll those lessons learned into the next part of the project. I know it seems kind of like, uh, I wish I could say, here's the tool that really solves all your problems, but it's really a lot of old-fashioned tools and techniques. What I like about what you're talking about is, like, everybody thinks Agile is the best thing since sliced bread. Instead of sitting there becoming all Agile, you're looking at specific Agile practices in a large initiative to help you chunkify or put at least some checkpoints in the project so you're not going down the wrong path. Does that make sense? Yeah, in fact, um, you know, when the, the uh, debacle of the healthcare.org implementation, the actual website, Google and a bunch of other large companies brought a bunch of experts in to help the government straighten this out, and they, they did it fairly quickly. And so this happened in November or whatever year it was. And in February of the following year in Time magazine, there was a great article on, well, how did they do it? And one of the things they did was they, they had two daily stand-ups. They had one at 10 o'clock and, and one at 6 p.m. 
to accommodate the people in California because the team was based in Maryland. And they had three rules for the stand-ups. One is, unless you're working on requirements, development, or testing, you can't speak during the meeting. The second rule was, we're not here to place blame. We're only here to solve problems. And the third rule was, we are only focusing on things that can hurt us in the next 24 to 48 hours. So they just that they had other things going on in that, that rescue mission as well. But it was real interesting to me that they, they lifted basically the daily stand-up and put it into a waterfall situation. Yeah, because what you're doing is you're the closer you get to the future, the easier you can predict it. So if you're only trying to predict the future for 24 to 48 hours, there's much more control over that than trying to figure out what your pain's going to be in two weeks. Right. All right, so let's jump into question number five, and I'm going to mess with you a little bit. So it always, this is a personal pet peeve when it relates to horror movies, especially like Scooby-Doo and stuff like that, even though Scooby-Doo's not horror. There's a little bit of a ghost element there. They always split up. I'm like, why do you split up? It's like insane. To me, there's like the kiss of death. seems to be, to me, that there's power in numbers. For large project initiatives, as you looked at some of these tips and tricks, what are one or two of these tips and tricks that can really help you stay consistent and get away from this idea of going in a thousand different directions or getting zapped because you spread yourself too thin? Okay, regular communication, that's, that's the best tip. It's, it's the social pressure of having to stand up and say, I didn't do anything yesterday. I mean, you can do that once, but then if it's the stand-ups are regular and you start looking like the guy that's always dropping the ball, you don't want to be the guy that's dropping the ball. So... Um, that helps. And also regular staff meetings or project reporting meetings that are really short. So it's not like, man, I'm going to eat up an hour every third day. It's 15 minutes or 20 minutes and it's well run, brief, and it's to the point. So that's one thing. And I just want to reiterate that in the process of developing the requirements and eliciting them is the visual tools, um, whether it's just a stick figure holding a little fake telephone, that's a lot better than just talking about things and it's all stuff imagined in your head. I mean, I've noticed on a flip chart, if I just write, put a dot in the middle of the flip chart, everybody starts looking at the dot while I'm talking. So drawing something, people are drawn to the drawing and they start suggesting, oh, we need an arrow coming in from the audit, uh, audit department. Or, you know, we need to be able to connect with the compliance group. So as you start drawing these things in, then it becomes real rather than it's just somebody's taking notes in the background. So visual and then the peer pressure of regular short status meetings. That's a fantastic answer because what scares me in large initiatives is everybody off in a thousand different directions. So being able to have that consistency and try to keep people on that same path, no, any of them intended, um, is very powerful. So our last question, and instead of using the question I have on the sheet, I'm going to change the question. No, I wouldn't do that to Rob because I think he would kill me. <laughs> so question number six, the last question. In a good psychological thriller or horror story, there is a, usually the search for the real puppet master. I got no strings to hold me down, you know, all that stuff, right? Right. Good old Pinocchio. The person who pulls the strings and is the real source of evil. 
For large projects, I can imagine locating that sponsor who is the real puppet master can be an interesting challenge. Tell us a couple of horror stories around working for or getting led by a sponsor without authority. And if possible, provide us a couple tips and tricks on how to properly locate the puppet master instead of getting caught beating around the bush all the time. Okay, so, you know, if I look back at the, some of the, the three examples I gave you, um, the one about the colonel from the Air Force, uh, like we were all, you know, scared of him. But he wasn't the ultimate authority. He reported to, you know, obviously just up the chain until you get to the chief justice of the court, but there was uh, administrative people that he reported to. But he had been slamming his fist down one time, and he said, put those damn requirements in concrete. So we even bought a shirt at a concrete company that said, do it in concrete. And we thought, this will be funny. We're kind of joining with him, but he didn't really join with us. So another another thing I just want to point out is that uh, during one implementation, we we wanted to pick a three-day weekend in case we had any problems. We had an extra day to back everything out and give it another try. So rather than, let's say, doing the implementation two weeks from now, we wanted to move it out to four weeks from now because that was the Easter weekend. And he was slamming his fist down. He said, what's so Galdern, although he didn't say Galdern. What's so Galdern sacred about Easter? <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> do we have to start with biblical stuff on this or what? So anyway, so the the thing is, we're afraid, and we're afraid to go over his head on top of that, because then we'd even get the the wrath of Khan coming down on, on us then. So, but the right thing to do would have been to. Um, I knew people that were higher up that were I had some sort of personal relationship with because of various things I'd done that I could have just gone in and say, look, I have a confidential situation. I want your advice um, and explain the situation with the 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 error with the welfare check kind of thing. What should I do? I'm afraid that if we go in, it's going to cause problems. On one hand, it's the low risk. But if it does happen, then what? So that's one thing is. Having a confidential conversation with somebody higher up that if they just say you just keep it like it is, then, OK, I, I really did do my best. Now, on the, the healthcare thing, you know, we only talked to the I.T. director and then she went off and talked to some people. We don't know who and then came back and said, just keep your mouth shut. But, you know, if that was a movie starring um, George Clooney or somebody or. Brad Pitt, they would have gathered the team up and said, we're not doing this. And they would have stomped out and thrown thrown in their resignations. And that would have been it. But of course, in real life, you're not going to do that. So but what we should have done is exactly what I just said about the courts is should have gone. Definitely the legal department needs to know about this for sure. So, Rob, interrupt you for a second. So basically, one of the things that a new B.A. should do is really be able to look at the broad spectrum of potential sponsors because in that situation, the healthcare situation, it was like, the, you didn't know who the sponsor was. It was like the Wizards of Oz behind the green curtain. So taking that extra effort to find out who else is in charge so you have a next step to go if you need to go there. Exactly. And, and you know, you don't know what, what pressures are on people above you. You know, maybe a compensation reward is was hanging in the balance you know or 
or maybe there have been talks, let's say at the, this healthcare thing, a lot of people in the upper echelon knew this, knew about this. And they all decided just to be part of the secret society and just enjoy the, enjoy the, the benefits of extra profits coming into the company. Yeah, like an Illuminati meeting. <laughs> exactly. So maybe yeah. everybody knew about it on the upper echelon, or maybe only a few people knew it. And maybe the legal department didn't know about it. Yeah, maybe but they were involved too. Or yeah, maybe they were, you know. You know so that. but we didn't know who didn't know, and we didn't know who did know. So but we didn't make an effort to make it any you know, I didn't I had worked, by the way, on the United Way campaign and worked on a system to collect employee donations kind of thing. And we had built yeah. a, these the uh, the thing in in house. The sponsor for that one year, the year that I was working on that, was the head of the legal department. So I had a personal relationship with him. I could have gone in there and talked to him about it. But at the time, everybody felt like, okay, it's really beyond our control. We did, our, we did what we could do. But um, I think if you go in and say, look, here's what I'm concerned about. I want to explain this to somebody for the good of the company. You know, I'm not doing it for me or our team or, you know, I just want to make sure for the good of the company we're doing the right thing. So, you know, with the IT director, we came in there so happy that we had found this error. We were like reeling when she told us to just keep your mouth shut. We thought we had discovered a good thing. You know, it kind of reminds me of that movie with the, dead, the guy the dead guy who dies and they walk him around all the time. Weekend with Bernie. Oh, yeah, Weekend at Bernie's. That's the same type of plot twist. They found something bad, and then Bernie had him try to have him killed. They found something bad that they thought was good, and then Bernie tried to have him killed. Anyways, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. After all that, and when I got older and was a contractor, I have to say, being a contractor, you always feel like your days are numbered. I mean, any time they could say we need to save money, let's get rid of three contractors, and you might be one, the one that's swept out of the office. So on one hand, you're always trying to be to demonstrate how valuable you are and what a good team player you are and everything else. But because you feel like your days are numbered anyway, you're not going to be a contractor for. 13 years probably at most places. So you feel a little more freedom just to be able to tell it like it is. You don't have an ax to grind. You're not trying to protect your career. You're only trying to do the right thing, which which is a good thing to be doing as an employee, but also as a contractor as well. And the older you get, I think the more, I mean, you have to balance, oh gosh, I've been here so many years, I don't want to throw that down the drain. But on the other hand, if you've established a reputation as a um, ethical ethical straight shooter, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, walking the thin line, um, yes, the blue line. So um, anyway, that I still think if you hit a dead end, you need to find a way to go around and bump it up to the next level because you're really just trying to do the right thing. It's a very interesting perspective. Um, any last-minute thoughts, Mr. Roberto, before Elvis leaves the building? Somebody should have stepped up to Elvis and told him to, to slow down on the drugs. No, yeah, that would Nobody be true. did it. Uh, <laughs> no, he did not. The no King had no clothes. In fact, that's how he ended up dying, right? So. That's right. Well, yeah. they all stopped fitting him, so he just walked around in his underwear. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, brother. On that wonderful note, we are ending this podcast, which has okay. been a fantastic experience. So. If you'd like to learn more about solutions, tools, and techniques for successful business analysis in a convenient setting, 
visit our website at www.aspe-sdlc.com slash BA hyphen master. For more information on upcoming business analysis masterclass series covering 20 critical topics that today's BAs need to know, go to that site as well. Thank you for listening. Again, my name is Elvis. Well, my name is David Manica. And this has been an episode of BA Horror Stories with the salty, seasoned Top Gun pilot, Roberto Snowden. Next time, with Roberto, hopefully, we'll talk about understanding and developing business rules in the strange dimension of business analysis.